The Tom Woods Show, episode 1524. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am running into a lot of progressives saying, look, police, fire, schools, these are all great examples of socialism. Well, let's focus on that school example. I've got a free ebook called Education Without the State that makes a pretty darn good case for a stateless approach to education. Pick it up at nostateeducation.com. Everybody, Tom Woods here talking today to our old friend Patrick Newman, professor of economics at Florida Southern College. Patrick Newman is the guy who cracked the code when it came to Murray Rothbard's handwriting. Rothbard, of course, Mr. Libertarian, died in January 1995, had many, many, many important projects to his credit. But one of them is his history of colonial America called Conceived in Liberty. Up to this point has been in four volumes, although the Mises Institute put them into one giant volume for people who prefer that. But the fifth volume, taking the story up through the Constitution, had been unavailable for reasons we'll get into in a minute. And it's thanks to one person that we're now able to read this book, and that's Patrick Newman. So we're going to talk about the story of the book. We've had him on before, but there's more to tell, and we're going to dive a little bit more deeply into the book itself. So I'm glad to welcome him back. Patrick, thanks for being here. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It was great seeing you last weekend in Los Angeles, which doubled as a supporter summit event for the Mises Institute and a book launch event for you for the fifth volume, as I just told folks, of the Conceived in Liberty series by Rothbard. And I might add, by the way, for anybody who hesitates, which you should not, to read this book thinking, well, I haven't read the other four volumes of Conceived in Liberty, so I can't read this fifth one. Stop it. That's just some crazy excuse, okay? These are self-contained volumes. Not to mention, Patrick here, your editor, has a seven-page summary of the other volumes to get you up to speed, so don't let that be an excuse. I mean, Rothbard died in early January 1995. Here we are in 2019. We're getting another Rothbard book. Don't make excuses not to get it. That's my opening pitch for you, Patrick. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, it, was, it was a great opening pitch. So I want to start with a little bit of the, well, we've told this before, but it's it's worth um, exploring again, the story of the book itself. Now, I remember when I was at the Mises Institute from 2006 to 2010, I saw like uh, maybe like an excerpt of volume five that had been typed out somehow by somebody. There were bits and pieces that existed, but then long passages, nobody knew what they said. And so there was some thought that maybe Joseph Stromberg, who was historian and resident at the time, might be able to salvage something from it, or one of us might be able to salvage something from it. So there was a desire at that time to see the light of day, but nothing came of it then. Because one, one nice thing about the Mises Institute, among many, is that Rothbard's entire library is there, all the books that he owned. So a lot of the time when you're looking at a book on the shelf, you're looking at the very copy Rothbard himself owned. And you can find that out right away because large sections of the book in question will be underlined. There'll be comments, exclamation marks in the margin, sometimes outraged comments by Rothbard. And most of the time you can't read what he's writing and you wish you could. You want to know what is he saying to Keynes in this particular on this page. You just cannot read it. And that was the stumbling block because he had written out Conceived in Liberty in longhand, the fifth volume. 
So I, I'm curious to know, you figured this out. You, you, you got somehow the Rosetta Stone for Rothbard's writing. And I guess I'd like this time if you could try to describe a little bit what that process was like. Did you little by little crack it? Or was there a thunderbolt one day and you got the whole thing? How, what did that process look like? Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Uh, so basically, it was a time-consuming process of just sort of a step-by-step. You're going sentence by sentence or really word by word. And so initially when I started this, so it is true, Rothbard had typed out about uh, or someone earlier on, uh, you know, back in the in, uh, 60s or 70s had typed out, you know, six, you know, roughly, you know, 60 pages of the beginning and there were edits in there, et cetera. And then the rest of it, uh, right around the middle of the section on Shay's Rebellion, uh, it just, it, you know, it falls off a cliff, so to speak. And it's just a handwritten, uh, pa- you know, just longhand, uh, you know, uh, passages. And you look at it and it looks like hieroglyphics and you go, well, that's the end of that. And basically it was a process that when I initially started, it was for about two days, I got maybe two sentences done. <laughs> And even those sentences, I had to go back and look, you know, some of the words and you had scattered marks. And I said, well, this is going to take simply too much time. Uh, I don't have time for this. Uh, This would be sort of a lifelong project uh, almost when I'm retired. And the Mises Institute provided a lot of helpful encouragement. Uh, Barbara Picard, the archivist at the time, as well as Judy Thompson, who is the uh, senior editor, I uh, said, well, you know, hey, like, just keep keep on trying. I think you'll be able to get a crack, et cetera. And I, w- I was ready to throw in the towel. And basically, I, I want to say I started on a Wednesday or Thursday. And over that weekend, you know, I really, you know, it's like, all right, I'm really going to push for this. And it started to come. It started to basically flow where I was saying, hey, I'm actually kind of understanding the words. There was some help when you could, he would have quotes of some passage someone said and you know very helpfully he provided footnotes i mean really the only you know, my editors you know what i say editors footnote editors remarks in brackets you know, all the other footnotes and quotes those are his and so if you could track down the book like you said you know he has the book i actually had to look some of them through a library the auburn library uh, or you could type parts of the quote you could figure out on google you could see the rest and then you could say oh that's what that word means or oh that's what you know, oh, that's the, you know, and then you could see, oh, so he writes his G's like F's or, you know, the P's, you know, like, it, and, and you could actually, you know, that was sort of the the help. And then you, you got better and better at it where you could then start to read it. I guess you could read Rothbardian semi-fluently. And then you would go back and you'd say, oh, that's the word I got wrong, et cetera. And, he, and then you could start to read it uh, more and more fluently. So what would happen is I would have the pages the actual longhand pages and it made copies of them. And you know, literally like at the very beginning, every word I was highlighting with a different color and like trying to, okay, that's what that means, et cetera. And by the end, I started to do that less and less. I wouldn't have to write out my own translation before I typed it up. And then I could just basically start to look at the pages and type it up from there. So it was, it was really like learning a new language and while I still spent some time, later time translating really up until sort of roughly a couple months before the book's uh, publication uh, last summer, the bulk of this sort of deciphering process occurred in the summer of 2018. And it was for about six weeks, I want to say, that I was doing this more or less six and a half days a week 
for about like 10 to 12 hours a day. And it was, it was definitely a time consuming process. I was going to sleep and I was seeing his words in my mind, uh, just cause you're literally like trying to learn a new language, but it was thoroughly enjoyable because I was basically reading something that no one else had read. And it was just this incredible history. And I was like, wow, I feel like I'm, you know, th- th- this is pretty cool. <laughs> so how long again did the entire process take from the moment you first set eyes on the longhand text? So I initially looked at the, when I started working the Rothbard archives in the summer of 2013, that was my second year as a Mises fellow, I, I, I stumbled upon it. And, you know, some of them were in different folders and you were able to put them all together. And at least that's when I saw it. And so it was the summer of 2013 when I said, wow, you know, this is, there's, you know, this is definitely a book, you know, unlike the progressive era, like it's very clear that he, he finished, you know, the book, at least he wrote to the end of what he wanted to write. And I said, you know, this would be something cool to do in the future. And I didn't really, you know, I was working on other things, you know, going through grad school and I worked on the, the unpublished fifth chapter of Man, Economy and State or the progressive era. And I started to look at it again in uh, after the progressive era. So the era. So this is like the fall of 2017, 2018. And I really started to work on it, like to actually, you know, work on the manuscript, you know, decipher it, you know, all of that in the summer of 2018. So the bulk of the translation process occurred uh, at about June and July of 2018. And then, you know, the rest of the time, uh, you know, spent tracking down sources going back and looking at, oh, okay, did I get that word right, et cetera. And I, I worked on the index and so on in the summer of 2019. So the bulk of the translation for about six weeks in 2018. Oh my gosh, did you do the index? Yeah, I did the index. Oh, oh yeah. okay. I, I did I did indexes for a couple of Rothbard books when I was a young pup at the Mises Institute in the mid-90s. Yeah. I have to say that that just is a terrible job. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's our progressive era. Yeah, it's, it's what separates like the... You know, it really like, all right, how much do you love what you're doing if exactly, you're willing to yeah, do the yeah, index? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You and I belong to an exclusive club. Yes, yes. Put it that uh, way. Yeah. So very, very exciting and amazing that this thing wound up seeing the light of day. So, and you're right, unlike the the uh, other book you worked on, this one clearly is self-contained and it, it obviously gets right up to the end because you can tell from the final chapter about the Constitution and his assessment of it that that's, that's the end. What I did, of course, I wrote the preface for this because the, the Judge Napolitano was writing a, a what turned out to be a rather a lengthy forward. So mine, mine is of modest length, but I noted that one of the things I did when I first got my hands on this book was I flipped immediately to the section on Shay's Rebellion, which, which is a, an episode in American history that really historians by and large got wrong for a long time until... A, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. It'll come to me. But about the early 2000s, there was a book that came out on Shay's Rebellion that really rethought the whole thing because it, it turned out it wasn't just uh, indebted farmers who were rebelling against their, their betters, which is the way historians love to portray things. Uh, Leonard Richards, that's the name. Shay's Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle. He was able to tell a different story because he had access to or he, he discovered that the documents existed about who had participated in the rebellion, which is normally very hard because people who participate in rebellions don't normally like to make a public spectacle out of it. But he had found out because they'd been required to sign loyalty oaths at the end, and he realized, wait a minute, these documents are right at the University of Massachusetts or whatever it was, right down the street. He was able to 
to find them and evaluate and find, wait a minute, these people are not indebted. This is, that's not what this was all about. So Rothbard's writing the fifth volume conceived in Liberty, probably in the seventies, I would think. And he doesn't have access to this new research. So I thought, what do Rothbard's instincts tell him is going on in the, in Shay's rebellion? Is he going to repeat the party line or is he going to point toward what we now know happened? And I flipped there and doggone it. He anticipated what Leonard uh, Richards wrote in 2003. I mean, it's just blankety blank uncanny that the guy was able to do that. That's the type of gem that awaits you in this book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he had incredible the the insights in the book because they go, you know, they go beyond, you know, obviously they go beyond that. There's many stuff, particularly on the Constitution, et cetera. Uh, He really has great foresight and he always provides a new perspective. And he always provides a very um, insightful perspective that you say, hey, wait a second, that makes you think differently about uh, this particular topic, uh, say the Constitution or the Anti-Federalists or even, you know, someone like James Madison, et cetera. And yeah, in the, in the Shays Rebellion, uh, that was, you know, he says, well, it was basically a tax revolt. And he goes through this and he goes through how it was, you know, the East versus the West and how Massachusetts uh, was, you know, forcing, basically wanted to pay all of its uh, government debt at its, you know, and, and, you know, it's basically its specie value it wasn't defaulting or repudiating its debt. The public was upset at the high taxes, uh, being thrown in jail for not paying taxes, uh, et cetera. And yeah, you know, it's, it's really a different perspective because this entire period, you know, the book is from 1784 to 1791, really it ends at about 1789. It goes up to 1791 because he talks about the Bill of Rights ratification process. But, you know, that period, the ratification of the Constitution, the Constitution, you know, that is, that is, uh, it's usually rushed over fairly quickly where you have the end of the Revolutionary War and, and then you say, okay, we had the Articles of Confederation, it didn't work. And then you had all these, the great men, we, they all gather over the summer for a big powwow in Philadelphia and they devised the constitution. And then, you know, the public just sort of, uh, you know, there's discussion, but then they, you know, they happily accept it. And then we're off to the Washington administration and we're off to the races, so to speak. Uh, but Rothbard really, you know, this is a book that's on a period that not a lot of people write about at length. Well, that's true. Certainly not in this level of detail going state by state and discussing the ratification process in each state. That is, uh, most people don't know anything about that. So Rothbard's not going to just give you a summary of what happened. He wants to go into what took place in each state. All right, when you crack open this book, you find, first of all, the book had started on page 45, because between the judge and me and your introduction, there's a lot of preliminary material that you can also enjoy. So you've got, a section on the economic legacy of the American Revolution. That would include discussions of public debt, paper money, uh, public debt on the state and federal level, uh, banking, tariffs, all that stuff is, is covered. Then the subject of the Western lands, and then you start to get into the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. So that's going to be the section that I think most people are going to want to skip directly to. You should read the whole darn thing, because the stuff I just mentioned to you is obviously of great interest. But the Constitutional Convention is going to get a telling that is different from what you got in your textbook. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> this is Rothbard is not your seventh grade textbook. So in so what what's Rothbard's story of the 
the Constitutional Convention? So uh, it's a great point. This certainly isn't the story you're going to get in uh, in your textbook or really in most other books on the Constitution. Uh, so as I mentioned before, the Constitution Convention, when it's spoken about, he says, well, the founding fathers, they realized that the Articles of Confederation just wasn't working. The country was veering towards anarchy. Uh, there was chaos. There's too much decentralization. There wasn't a strong central government to properly coerce people into paying taxes, et cetera. And so first, in the first two parts, Rothbard basically demolishes that. And he says that, well, the problems of the Articles of Confederation, to the extent that there were problems, it was from too much government. It was from basically trying to pay uh, the debt at full value after the Revolutionary War. Uh, and actually, there wasn't like these battles of, of high tariffs. Uh, between states, the Articles of Confederation, the uh, unanimity requirement for raising taxes was very effective, et cetera. So at first he goes through that. But then when it comes to the Constitutional Convention, Rothbard is is very clear that this was basically a coup, so to speak, where you had they were given the authority by the Confederation Congress to basically make amendments or at least you know start a, a convention to recommend amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And instead, largely through the impetus of famous founding fathers like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, uh, they really made a push to instead scrap that plan and to just create an entirely new government. And this government was not a confederation like the Articles of Confederation. It was really a central government uh, that had a a much stronger power to uh, kick the states in the line to raise taxes, to raise standing armies, to fund its own debt, to pass you know uniform tariffs and navigation laws, uh, et cetera. And so this, you know, Rothbard did the Constitutional Convention. He goes through all of the debates, and it was really dominated by uh, the groups he calls the Nationalists, who later called themselves Federalists for tactical effect. And while there were many fights between the the Nationalists over the extent of government power, or basically who would control the levers of power, whether it was the large state nationalists or the small state nationalists, or the, you know, how would slaves get represented, uh, et cetera. Some of these are, you know, the classic discussions you hear about, or, you know, you, you read about when you talk about the Constitutional Convention. Rothbard, of course, adds his own penetrating libertarian insights into these discussions and how really, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the small group of anti-federalists who you might say, were actually the true Federalists, you know, they more or less, you know, they tried to make, you know, changes, they tried to weaken the government, but they they left the Constitutional Convention, you know, in disgust during its proceedings. But this was, you know, the Constitutional Convention, it was really a a coup to illegally create, to draft up a far stronger government that then subsequently they tried to sort of ram down the public's throats. Yeah, I've always, um, and I know that my listeners are going to, some of them are going to disagree with me, but I've always been uncomfortable with the the idea of it being a coup. And the reason is it had to be ratified by the states. All the states had to do was say no. You know, like that's not, a coup is quite different from that. A, a coup is not a situation where the states are surveyed and then if they'd say no, then it doesn't go through. A coup just goes through regardless. So the fact that they did send it out for ratification, that the states could just simply have said no to it. So I, I don't agree with that. But nevertheless, I do agree that uh, there were people with intentions that I don't, in my opinion, are not honorable who 
drove a lot of the the debate and the discussion. Now, speaking of debate and discussion, he's got a state-by-state analysis of the ratification debates. Now, is this just tiresome detail or is there some merit in this? Oh, I yes, I I think that the ratification debates are actually the the strongest uh, my my favorite section, you know, my favorite uh, part of the book because I think at least so in a sense you are correct when it like a coup at least when you when you think about it it's like all right they take over the government. I do think though it has it's certainly elements of a coup because it wasn't done legally at least through the government where the the Confederation Congress had to had to go through the Confederation Congress instead they only sent it to them and then they said that well you only need nine out of thirteen of the states I believe that was the the number and then you actually look at the state governments uh, the actual ratification debates in the state governments it wasn't through the state legislatures it was through separate conventions which the Federalists or the as they now called themselves were very clear that they did that simply to make it easier. Uh, there were a lot of dirty tricks that Rothbard goes through that the proponents of sort of the Constitution pushed through, you know, that really allowed it to uh, the Constitution get ratified in, in the states, some of them by very razor thin margins, particularly in states like Virginia, New York, uh, even Massachusetts. The most infamous of all was sort of Rhode Island. Uh, and Rothbard goes through how it it kind of wasn't a fair election you had one, the, the Federalists sort of controlled the mail. So they were able to control the sort of the, the discussion. Uh, and they, they, you know, the, the many times they lied and they said certain people were supporting the Constitution when they didn't, or it took longer for anti-Federalist mail to get through. The apportionment of delegates was skewed towards the East instead of the West. So that deprived the West of, of some votes. The Federalists bribed many delegates couple other, you know, dirty tricks. And, you know, biggest of all was the fact that they promised a restrictive bill of rights after the constitution was ratified. And they said, all right, we'll take your consider your suggestions to consideration. We'll talk about the bill of rights, or at least what Rothbard says about the bill of rights uh, later. But, you know, this was, it wasn't, I guess, something you would say is a really fair election, so to speak. And I guess this is where sort of the elements of the coup come through, it kind of shines, or at least the, you know, of, of a government sort of forced upon the people. Uh, I mean, most notably was Little Rhode Island, which ratified after the government was started along with North Carolina. And they were basically threatened with retaliatory trade legislation. Uh, and they said, you know, like it was pending in Congress. It's like, all right, if you don't, if, if you don't ratify this, you know, then, you know, we're going to drop the boom, so to speak. And, uh, you know, really kind of, you know, threaten the little state into uh, into submission. And this is my favorite part of the book, simply because Rothbard goes through all of these battles in the state conventions. He goes through particularly the battles in Massachusetts and Virginia, Patrick Henry, Virginia, in New York, the Clintonians, and really kind of brings some of these characters to life that you really don't hear about in normal discussions. When you do hear about them, it's usually kind of dismissive. And uh, they're not really appreciated. And finally, there is, a, as you say, toward the end, there is a discussion of the Bill of Rights. So what, what do we get out of Rothbard? Like what's, the, what's the Rothbardian take on the Bill of Rights? So Rothbard would basically be, you know, said that, so first of all, the Bill of Rights, during the constitutional process, during this fifth volume, James Madison, you know, everyone, everyone knows Alexander Hamilton. 
right? You know, uh, he was he was a big uh, proponent of big government. He was a big nationalist. You know, he, he didn't really contribute a whole lot in the Constitutional Convention simply because he was always outvoted by his New York delegation, which he was a part of. And you know, he tried to push sort of for a very you know monarchical form of government uh, that other people sort of balked at. I guess you could say James Madison in many ways kind of comes across as the ultimate bad guy of the book, uh, where he's a very strong nationalist. He really wants to push through a stronger government. He's really an anti-British pro-Virginia nationalist, but that's a uh, conversation I guess you'd say for another time in that, you know, one of the things he sort of had to promise, you know, the Federalists had the promise was, all right, we're going to have a restrictive bill of rights. So it's going to be limits on the direct taxing powers, give me limits on standing armies, throw in some term limits. Uh, you're going to have the famous, you know, all powers not expressly delegated uh, to the federal government belong to the states, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, Madison also had to promise this if he wanted to win election to the House of Representatives because Patrick Henry was sort of furiously trying to, you know, uh, prevent him from from winning uh, in Virginia after uh, the state ratified. And so then Madison basically realizes that now the anti-federalists are going to try and push for a second constitutional convention to sort of weaken the Constitution, to now push for all of the stuff that they wanted to get through. And that would totally throw everything you know, up in the air, so to speak. And Madison is like, all right, got to nip this thing in the bud, going for a Bill of Rights, uh, going to push it through. And uh, he had to fight some Federalists who thought that there was no need for a Bill of Rights. But uh, what little anti-Federalists had power in the uh, federal government were also very upset because they go, hey, wait a second. This isn't the thing that we wanted. This mostly dealt with personal liberty, which is you know laudatory in itself, but this wasn't the structural amendments that they had hoped for. So guys like Richard Henry Lee and William Grayson of Virginia, uh, and then you know many other people, et cetera, you know they were very uh, so they were both in Congress at the time. They were, they were very sort of upset with this, and then they realized okay, half a loaf is better than no bread at all. And it really, you know, it was important because the really the main structural amendments you could say were the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Now, I know Rothbard has some interpretations of this that other constitutional scholars may disagree with. Uh, but for him, you know, sort of, I guess you could say the Tenth Amendment was structural in that it kind of returned the government to somewhat of a quasi-confederation. But the big thing is it left out the word expressly. And it was really all just, you know, the whole Bill of Rights was just sort of a you could say stratagem of, of Madison to really nip any sort of anti-federalist resistance. Now, of course, what Rothbard talks about at the end of the book, and this is equally important, is that the whole strict interpretation of the Constitution that even James Madison later employed for various reasons, as well as Thomas Jefferson and the anti-federalists, that was all their way. They said, well, we're now going to argue the lie the federalists told us, so to speak. And that we're now going to interpret all this as if it was just like the articles or close enough to it. And that's a, a very fascinating discussion Rothbard briefly talks about that I think really kind of puts a new light on any of the sort of subsequent battles in American constitutional history. Well, we're going to uh, leave it there for today. The book is, of course, Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5, linked at tomwoods.com slash 1524. It is a good time, by the way, to get the whole Conceived in Liberty series, but uh, certainly at the very least, just the sheer novelty of being able to read another book by Rothbard 
24 years after his death, almost 25, it's, uh, it's just too much to pass up. It's, it, it's just insane. It's, it's insane how much he's released since his death or has been released on his behalf. Uh, there were tremendous monographs that have been discovered, like about scientific research and the free market. There's been one on um, Wall Street banks and American foreign policy. That was like a long article he wrote for some obscure investment newsletter that nobody read. And he never, no one else ever saw it after that. And Justin Raimondo made a publication out of it, put an introduction on it. That that would have languished in obscurity. No one would ever have seen it again. Th these are the kind of gems that you can find. We found whole book manuscripts, books we could put together from essays he wrote on different topics. And now we have Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5. I am inclined to say this is the last Rothbard book. Do you have any reason to think I'm wrong? Uh, in terms of, aside from additional correspondence, uh, you know, more letters or reviews of, uh, you know, manuscripts, papers, et cetera, that he did. Uh, yes, I would say you are correct. Unless there's a closet in the archives I haven't seen yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. The secret. Yeah. You have to get special ninja access to, to that particular yes. resource. All right. So tomwoods.com slash 1524 is where you can find an easy, quick link to get volume five of Conceived in Liberty. Well, again, heroic work for which you will never be forgotten. You are now etched in history forever as a hero <laughs> to the libertarian movement, Patrick Newman. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right, folks, I have a special message for my Canadian listeners, and I know you are out there. A fellow Tom Woodshow listener has a podcast and blog that would be of particular interest to you as Canadians, and that is politicalparadox.ca. Each week they talk about libertarian and free market principles through the news headlines of the week. The main focus is on Canadian news, though they do talk about U.S. and world news as well. So that's a resource. I bet some of you folks, I mean, we think we're going crazy in the U.S. must be very difficult to cope up there sometimes. And now you have a Tom Wood Show listener as a companion. So check out politicalparadox.ca. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1524. And of course, you all know it's just like Bob Barker telling you have your pets spayed or neutered. If you would like publicity for a website you are thinking of starting up and you don't want there to be tumbleweeds when you launch it, well, make sure and use my link to get a good price on your web hosting and I will give you a nice shout out plus membership in my bloggers group that'll give you a nice uh, leg up and, and help you out when you need help and some other great benefits as well. So check out the details on that, tomwoods.com slash publicity. Uh, on that page, by the way, you'll also see a list of the sites I've promoted before. People have asked for that, so I created that too. You'll find that also at tomwoods.com slash publicity. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.